want to make a podcast, let me tell you about Spotify's program for podcasters. And it's called Spotify for Podcasters. I've been using it for over a year now. Couldn't be happier from the switch. You can record wherever you create podcasts, whether it be your phone, computer, and it's easy to upload it and distribute it to everywhere podcasts are heard. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. Best of all, Spotify for Podcasters is completely free. So launch your podcast today. Get started with Spotify for Podcasters. Go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. Everything had to be surgical. This was high intensity, Old Testament. All the women and children are gone. If it's, if it's walking, it's got a gun, you get ventilated. It's done. It's through. We want to get right to our top story. The U.S. assault on Fallujah. This morning, American troops are driving towards the heart of the Iraqi city. Army and Marine units began the push early today, moving on two fronts from the north, assisted by Iraqi soldiers. Our bodies rotting there since April. So everything is just teeming with bacteria and, and broken debris. And, and, and you learn to trust the sense that you never thought you would need in a firefight. Everything, my eyes, my eyes are 100%. Not anymore. My eyes are seeing water buffaloes cross the road. My eyes are gone. My ears are done. Everyone's shooting five feet away from you. They're watching our every move. Iran, Russia, China, North Korea, ISIS, Al-Qaeda. We have been honed into a machine of lethal moving parts that you would be wise to avoid if you know what's good for you. We will not be intimidated. We will not back down. We've seen war. We don't want war. But if you want war with the United States of America, there's one thing I can promise you, so help me God. Someone else will raise your sons and daughters. Altitude. Altitude. Tower Twice, this is Release U, runway 2002, Welcome and thanks for listening in. My guest today is David Bellavia. He is a recipient of the Medal of Honor. He recently has just released his second book, Remember the Ramrods, which is a great book and I encourage you to go check it out. But it was a privilege to be able to talk to him today and just glean a little bit about his experience and hear his story. I think you're really going to like today's episode. Before you're rolling, as always, a couple admin notes. Thank you to my Patreon supporters for supporting the podcast and making it possible. Thank you to all those who've gone out to iTunes and Spotify and dropped a rating review. If you haven't done so, please consider spending the six to nine seconds going over there. Leave a rating and leave a comment that helps the podcast out. And you can share this with your friends and family because the algorithms don't necessarily do a great job sharing it, but help me grow the podcast. I truly appreciate it. Each and every one of you. This podcast is brought to you by bogeydope.com. If you're interested in military aviation or civilian aviation, you can click the link down below. Take you over to bogeydope.com. They have a whole host of courses and instructors who have so much experience, not only in the military, but in the civilian aviation field that can help you launch your aviation career. Also, Wingman Watches. 
love their watches. I think you will too. You can use the code RAIN10 to get 10% off a current watch, or you can mention my name and get a discount if you decide to build your own group custom watch. With all that being said, let's get into the episode with David Bellavia. Sir, thanks for joining me on the podcast. It is an honor to have you on here. So thanks for taking the time today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it, man. Well, first and foremost, again, too, like, thanks. Uh, you sent me your book, which just came out. And this is your second book. Uh, this book, Remember the Ramrods. And I'll say uh, we had some coordination trying to make this podcast happen. At least I was working with your publisher there. I had a bunch of people sick in my household back and forth. I got the book and it was completely random, but I started reading it on November 7th and wrapped it up on November 10th Wow! to uh, two significant dates. Again, that was just completely by, by happenstance where we, we started this whole process. So the book is great. I encourage uh, everyone to go out there and pick it up, but remember the ramrods, very, very powerful stuff there. So Thanks. David Bellavia, thank you. Um, Thanks for having me, man. I, I appreciate reading it. You know, so many people, they don't, they don't read the book. Man. <laughs> they start like, tell me what's it do? Well, why do you remember ramrods? You know what I mean? Like it's, it's all, it's all like PS, but that means a lot, man. It really does. And thank you for your service and everything you represent, man. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I, I want to jump in to the book here in, in just a minute, but there's such a dichotomy to what you're doing today. So you got a radio show, you've written two books and you also, after I would say one hellacious round in combat, you jump back into the theater as a journalist. Did you always have a passion for journalism and you know writing and talking? How, how do those worlds come together? No, I, I honestly, I met a journalist in Michael Ware uh, for Time Magazine who just I just looked at him like he was the coolest guy in the world. I hated journalists. <laughs> and, and you know, I, I didn't even know what the purpose was. But I just figured, um, I guess it was a selfish exercise because I wanted to see the war from a different okay. point of view. And I also knew that, like, nobody else would – imagine going, like, to Iwo Jima, like, in 46 – you know, like, what would that be like to just kind of go to a battlefield like two years later and, and just it wasn't worth it? You know, what, what? was it? What, what what's the point of view? I hated it. I hated journalism <laughs> because it was horrible and no one cares about you and you find yourself in bad spots and it, it, there was no camaraderie at all. Everything that I felt about a journalist, they now felt about me. And it kind of made me want to throw myself off a building. <laughs> well, what, I mean, how did you even get into that? Because that's, again, that's, that's a big shift. Did you say, yeah, were you talking to Michael? Because we'll talk about Michael here in a little bit, I'm sure. To like get your foot back in the door to now go deploy, for lack of a better term, and be a four deployed journalist. Like, how did that transpire? It was surprisingly easy to do. Like at the time there was this, at the time there was this uh, phenomenon called balcony journalism where these okay. guys would cover the story just basically, you know, in a chow hall, they were getting footage from the enemy really. And they were just running the video and it was just IEDs and attacks and they they weren't on patrol. They weren't seeing anything. They're just kind of reporting from the green zone. Michael Ware was not that guy. Michael Ware was living in the red zone. And so, A, yeah. I wanted to see Michael Ware. 
So I wanted to go back to Iraq just to see him. And my buddies were over there. And so I figured I could do this on my own terms and I could just write a bunch of op-eds and get people to notice me. Managing editors thought I was crazy. And, you know, most of the embeds thought that I was like, um, you know, like a cowboy trying to go kill people. So it was, it was, so then I just became like a B-roll guy, you know, like just shoot B-roll and send it to us. And then we'll put it with a real journalist story. And so I started to do that. And then it was like, I could write, I'll write an op-ed or I'll write something that I see. Um, But it was, it was not, uh, it was easy to do to get there. It was difficult to do the job. And the other part was that I, I, there was absolutely no fidelity. Like nobody cared. At one point I disembedded and I was like, Hey, can I just like go to Fallujah alone? I don't want to go on like a Kung Fu walking the earth, you know, an existential journey and put like Americans at risk, you know? So can I just leave? And they're like, yes. Like, what do you mean? Yes. You don't even give a shit. Like, what if I die? They're like, no one cares. I'm like, so I can just leave. They're like, just sign out. We're not responsible for you. Find a way home. You just and walked so out like, the fob or. Yeah. just took a cab from like, you know, Diala to Fallujah. And it was, that was crazy because there were like checkpoints, like Mahadi militiamen checkpoints. And I remember the cab driver was like, I'm going to stop. And I'm like, dude, if you stop, we're dead. Like I'm, th- you can't stop. You know, you're going to continue to drive like a good Uber, (laughs) you know, so there was a lot of crazy moments, but I learned a ton of, I had a more respect for Michael Ware than I had before because that's a really tough job to do. I'm not cut out for it. I'm not good at it. And uh, I was just missing war. I just wanted to get back in it and it was the wrong way to do it. Yeah. You mentioned kind of the isolation piece of that from deploying with the unit, the battalion, and obviously you guys are depending on one another to survive to now you're the guy who's the outsider, you know, showing up in a unit. How, how was that? One of the things that was really strange for me was watching, um, watching a unit lose someone like catastrophically and realizing how much of an intrusion it was like everyone that was hurt or died was someone we knew and we cared for. And, and I was just kind of like, I felt like gawking. I was, I was, I was like ambulance chasing and okay. it just felt super itself. It felt like I was, I was invading and I can't imagine what those embeds go through because they see it all the time. They do it all the time and how, you know, you just, you're not a threat. Everyone thinks you're a threat. Everyone's like, turn your camera off, stop recording everything I was doing. It was like living in bizarro land. It was like, you're, you know, you show up and you're dealing with your own persona and they, what you did to someone else, it was like the Christmas Carol, you know, like you were the ghost of, of Christmas present and you were dealing with your own facsimile NCO that was telling you, get out of here, you know, you know, stop recording my guys. Don't talk to my guys. And then you see something happen. It was a, it was a Marine. It was in Ramadi and this real tall kid. He was an engineer and he, he got, he got hit 
and watching people mourn someone they cared about, it just hit me like, I don't belong here. Like, this is not, there's nothing about this that I, I am, I'm helping. I'm not doing anything other than witnessing trauma. And it, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't for me. It wasn't my job. It's a whole nother level. Did you ever talk? Cause you and Michael Ware were obviously very close is what I gather from reading the book or reconnected after writing the book and, and doing some after the medal of our medal of honor ceremony. But did you ever talk to anyone about this? Is that a shared vision or did you just kind of press on? Yeah, I don't, I don't, um, I, I didn't have any r- real relationship with Michael Ware until, you know, maybe 10 years after the war, I started seeing okay. him on Bill Maher and, uh, he would drop me a line here or there. He came back in like 2008 and he did a, a CNN follow-up and then he wrote a Newsweek piece on like Fallujah 10 years later. And I had like two brief conversations with him, but it was, you know, respect and, how you doing? What's going on? But I didn't really have a connection. And then he, he did that documentary and I realized that, you know, I mean, you write a book, it's your perspective. It's what you saw, what you think. And I just never knew that he was in the house. I I didn't know that. And so I was writing and telling the story and I just never thought, well, why would he be in the house? That made no sense. And when I found out he was, and when I saw him walking around the room's with a camera, I first of all felt horrible that I had thought that for that many years. And then I just felt a connection to him that he trusted me. And I never really, I never really told him how much he meant to me and how much I cared about him. I don't know if I was wired to do it at the time, but I mean, I love my guys and I'm really close with them, but Michael Ware is one of my guys. I mean, he's part of this family. He's a part of this unit. And, you know, I, I am, I really, and again, I, we're not, we don't see the world the same way. Um, but I really respect him and I really admire him and I really care for him. And he's a, he is about as loyal and decent a man as I've met in my life. And for him to come from the school of journalism is just it's crazy <laughs> because I don't think he's a journalist. I think he's a, a, a he's an infantryman with a camera. Right. You know, but he's, he's a wonderful human being. He really is. Well, after, after reading the book and then I went and watched only the dead, his documentary. And when you watch that, just seeing for a guy who doesn't have a weapon, his weapon is the camera. I mean, I couldn't even fathom that. And then obviously November 10th, the, the, when you're talking about being in the house, the, the amount of chaos, the amount of carnage, uh, I, I can't even fathom that. He's a lunatic, <laughs> he's, he's, uh, but, but the, what, what that really shows though, it shows a tremendous amount of trust, you know, Yeah, I, it shows a tremendous amount of fidelity. And, and, you know, when you write a book, like two years after the fight, you, you're just, it's raw and it's real and you're going for accuracy, but you're also trying to like paint a picture this is back in the day. I couldn't have remember the Ramrods is a book. I had to, it's a mature book. At least I hope I'm hoping it's a mature book. It, it took 
wisdom and maturity to write something like that. When we're young, we don't tell each other we love each other. We don't share with each other. I don't think about tomorrow. I don't think about, you know, today is a totally different, I'm at a totally different spot in my life. And so when I'm, when I look back at Michael Ware, I think I'm not able to do any of those things unless he believed and forced me to do it. You know what I mean? Like it was his belief in me that I could do it. And he knew that there were eight guys in that house. I thought there was two. He didn't feel the need to share that with me because he was like, I'm with you no matter what. If we die, I'm with you. And if we live, I'm with you. And that's a fidelity I never had in my civilian life. I never had that. My partners, my friends, they, they weren't they weren't those types of people. I met those people in the military and and Michael Ware's one of those people. Now it's different. Yeah. Now I have those people in my life. I didn't have those you know, back then, but now, and it, and it forces you to surround yourself with better people. You know what I mean? It forces you to yeah. kind of put <laughs> more quality people in your life. And, but I had to learn, you know, which we all do. And that's one of those things, the, the events you went through and um, your team went through. It's something most people will never even come close to, but I would imagine that obviously has some kind of impact and it gives you that perspective to me, just reading, you know, these are reminders for someone who hasn't had go through anything close to what you're going through. For me, it's a reminder of, you know, just how frail life is, but two, just that you're not guaranteed tomorrow. You're not guaranteed all these things that you tend to take for granted, which one of those pieces is. I would say quality of the people you surround yourself with, as you alluded to, is like you can let yourself go down a rabbit hole, and not really be focused and be true in the moment to everything that's occurring. But I want to back up real quick. We kind of jumped in. Where did where did you decide, hey, I want to go into the army? So I, I was um, the youngest of four. My dad was a dentist in in uh, Western New York, right outside of Buffalo. And uh I, I was just a normal kid. Everyone had college and there's a, there's a bit of an age difference between uh, me and my oldest brother, like 10 years. So it's like having, you know, surrogate dads, you know, they're all your heroes and your big brothers and they're all doing all these cool things. And uh, my granddad, who's still alive, he's 102 and he's a Normandy vet, Sicily, North Africa. And he had like 13 kids and a ton of grandkids. But for whatever reason, because I, I rarely saw him because we live so far away from him, when I would see him, I'd only want to talk to him about World War II. I only want to talk about the war. And he, he talked about nobility and just like a generational quest. And, and not that he, he romanticized combat. It wasn't like it never was about death, but it was about purpose and about a sense of knowing that you're needed and being around all these adventures. And, and so I just, all I wanted to do was before I died, I wanted to experience that, you know, but I, but there wasn't a war that, that could really, you could join. Um, and then I had an experience when, when I was coming home from college and these guys like robbed my parents' house, uh, it was like a home invasion and, I just didn't, everything I dreamed that I was or thought that I was, I, I wasn't. And so when I took everything into kind of an inventory, 
I think I disappointed my father and I, I knew my brothers had made my dad so proud. I wanted to kind of do that too. And I figured that, you know, the army was just summer camp of bad haircuts. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't, <laughs> you know what I mean? I was, I was going to have abs and I was going to learn how to be responsible. Yeah. So I, I joined up for infantry and I, I just wanted to learn how to be a man. And I felt the army was the best way to do that. <laughs> Talk about that advertisement. That was a good advertisement to get you to think that, huh? Um, well, it, did it you worked. F- it, 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 yeah. I, I learned much more than I ever learned. And I was, I did all the way to my last semester of college. And um, I, I learned so much more in the army than I did in university. Were you doing real life and real experience? Not that to completely ding university, right? But for me to go fly jets, just like everyone else, we had to go get a college degree, which I have used none of as an international affairs major. If I got hit in the eye with a rock tomorrow, I'd be out of a job because it was completely worthless. But it's one of those things, you know, you had to check a box to go, go be a pilot. Well, it, it, and, uh, I would, it, with, with the pilots, it's like you join thinking everyone in the air force, everyone, aviation, Navy is a fighter pilot. Everyone, you know, like this is what I'm here to do. And there's a million other jobs that aren't that. But when you, the first time I had a pilot radio down to me was one of the coolest experiences of my life. I mean, you see these fixed wing over your head and that roar on the battlefield (laughs) is one of the coolest feelings when you're in a really bad spot and you hear that sonic boom and you're just like, dude, it's coming. You know, the confidence, like <laughs> the right. enemy shits yeah. its pants. You're, you know, <laughs> like totally in control. And I had a, a, a pilot bump down, which is almost, it's never happened. But like hearing the, the pilot talk to you is, it was like, I remember it was like talking to, you know, Matt Damon. You know what I mean? Like, I was like, I can't <laughs> believe this. This is the coolest thing in the world. Uh, <laughs> but it, it, you don't, you don't get those experiences. And, and you think in this war, it was army war, air force war, Navy war, Marine Corps war. Fallujah was the fight that we all kind of came together and did it together. And it, it, and it had, it's our, it's our generation's Normandy beach. It really was it, it, all the branches of service, one side, old Testament, kill everything in front of you. You didn't really get yeah. a lot of those shots in, uh, in Iraq. Well, that's a really good point too, because I I wanted you to paint the picture of what the landscape looked like uh, for you guys rolling in there. Because I know 2004, that's when you get there. But the battle space, I mean, we we talk Iraq, Afghanistan, and how those fights have evolved time and time again. And it's easy for people to lose track of where you're initially talking uh, right in the beginning of the podcast. I kind of thought, you know, the, if we talk about the getting up armored Humvees, then, you know, MRAPs weren't a thing, you know, body armor was in, in need. It's the insurgency spiked. All these things have just woven and there's been this ripple effect throughout. So I do want to back up like 2003, 2004, where are you? And then what is that battle space looking like in that time frame leading up to Fallujah? So everyone, you know, I'm in a mechanized armor unit and we're forward deployed to Germany. So Afghanistan was never on our horizon. And at the time, it was Germany first ID. We were peacekeepers. So we had Kosovo. And the plan was to, you know, take 
the march up to Baghdad, everyone wanted a piece of it. You know, Saddam, the Ba'athist regime crumbled pretty quickly. And and if you didn't really get that fight, you weren't getting the fight. So we didn't really have a lot of anticipation that, A, we were going to get Iraq. And when we did get slotted for Iraq, we were in Kosovo. So we got extended in Kosovo for three months. So that made it a nine-month deployment. And then a quick refit and qualification and back into the shoot. Uh, at a time when, you know, we didn't know how long these deployments were going to last, doing 21 months overseas, you know, in a 25-month period was pretty pretty taxing for families and whatnot. Yeah. But the, the mindset was we weren't even going to get a combat infantryman's badge, let alone a combat patch. It was just going to be a, a Kosovo. We're peacekeepers. We're going to peacekeep. But, you know, my, my command and my leadership, uh, senior NCOs and officers, they turned Kosovo into just a giant range. I mean, we lived on a range and we would patrol during the day and just blow things up at night. And, and so we were in a position because of Kosovo where we were, we knew each other, we knew what we could do, but more importantly, we were shooting more rounds and doing more than any unit in the army because we lived there, you know, and it, it was all we had to do. So we get to Iraq and we start to realize that this is still a war. Uh, we got the Mahani militia. We've got, we're on the Iranian border. Uh, our home station base in Iraq was in Diyala province, right? A little north of Anaconda and a place called Fab Normandy near Warhorse, Bakiba. And so we were getting the Easter uprising. Uh, we got called to go to Najaf. Charlie Company went out to Mosul. Uh, our Bradleys and our tanks were effective in the city. Uh, when you've got infantry supporting armor and you bring that into an urban fight, it, it's highly effective. And it wasn't something that they were doing uh, before. So we were we were successful and we'd work with Marines in the Joff and we could pick up and move on a day's notice. Uh, and we were attriting the enemy and, and pretty impressive command was happy with, with how many bad guys we were putting down. So um, that just led to an amalgam of you know, being the nine one one of of Iraq for that year, you know, Armored First Cav, First Infantry Division. That's what we were being used for. And so when Fallujah kicked off, it was it made sense that we were going to go just like we did in the job to to help them out. And but had the job had Fallujah happened in the beginning of the deployment, it, it probably is a lot more attrition. But because we had that like crescendo, where we had had experience in urban close quarter fighting, it, it, it was really, you know, uh, providence that uh, we were able to have it later on in the year because we were ready for that, you know, culmination of the fight where we had cut our teeth. Najaf was April 2004, correct? So we were or April of 04. The fight in Najaf, the actual battle was in August. Uh, it was supposed to okay. be in April. But we we ended up missing the August fight. We got the April. So we were the first unit in Najaf in April, ready to take out Sadr. It, they had a peace treaty. That peace treaty went away in August. They had the big fight in August, but we weren't a part of that. Okay. And then November rolls around now, Fallujah. Again, just kind of building the timeline. Cause you know what's what's crazy about this? Again, as I go back and forth. So my my last deployment was Operation Inherent Resolve which it was wild to then see bombs being dropped on Al-Assad air base where we used to have tankers, swimming pool, uh, you know, revisiting all, all the nice spots like Fallujah and Ramadi uh, all over again. 
granted my, you know, my perspective was slightly different from a few thousand feet above it, but it's just kind of, uh, you know, it's, guess it is what it is. The hornet's nest has been kicked. Humpty Dumpty has fallen off the wall. Can't be put back together again. Whatever you want to go with. Um, yeah, it's, it's, that was devastating. That was to watch that. I I mean, I'm sure, you know, being in the fight was, was crazy, but watching that from home and seeing the ISIS flag, you know, wave over areas that you fought so hard for was just a gut punch. And it, you know, it makes me feel obviously Afghanistan much more devastating and dramatic. I didn't get Afghanistan, but I, I, I felt it when ISIS kind of rolled through without any resistance. That was really tough. That was tough to watch. You know, for me, I've talked about a couple other podcasts because I did uh, an intelligence surveillance reconnaissance platform, MC-12s in Afghanistan. I did F-16s in Iraq and Syria. And so for for me, right, like a different perspective than someone on the ground. Um, I think there's that's an easy argument to make, but to watch, you know, your buddies, you've, everyone's lost buddies over the years, some more than most people have come back completely changed, missing limbs, et cetera. For me watching Afghanistan go like, I think most veterans was really disheartening, really frustrating. Um, and just seeing that. And then again, I can only imagine what it's like for someone like you blood, sweat and tears are on the streets and in the houses of Fallujah where, yeah, 10 years later, you're seeing ISIS flags pop up all over the place. Did you, uh, do you talk to anyone about that? Is that a normal conversation to have? Yeah. I mean, one of the things I always felt about my place in the world was that I, I really felt like I, and maybe it's just being naive and or ignorant, but I always felt that I could control what's in front of me and outgunned, outmanned, you know, I just, it, it wasn't really cockiness. It was just, I trained these guys and I fired a lot of them that couldn't cut it. I mean, it wasn't like I just took what I got. I mean, I, I had guys that I selected and I, I, I broke them and I felt what they could take. And I, I saw that they were better than me in every way. They were stronger and quicker and younger and more agile and mentally, spiritually. I wanted soldiers that were better than me at that rank that could eclipse me when I got, you know, to the part where I was done. Um, and so knowing what I knew with them, I felt like I was Thor, you know, like there, there wasn't an, a for you could put see, I mean, honestly, I felt like, you know, Delta seal team six. I mean, yeah, we didn't, we didn't get tested. We didn't do a swim test. We didn't do a land nav course, but there's nothing you can do to us. We're, we're not going to go away. And we're not going to break contact. And if there's four of us remaining, we're going to, we're going to cut you up. That's how I felt. And so I, I never, I, I, it was impossible that, that our forces could be beat. It just, it's, it's not practicable. It's not realistic. Like you're not, there's always going to be an element of our military that's going to want to fight. What is, why are civilians, why are we trying to, you know, be kinder and gentler about war. I mean, if, if we're, if we're going to war, you break glass, you go to war. If you don't want to go to war, don't send us to war, but I'm not going there to stalemate. I'm not going there to tie and I'm not going there to lose. And, and so, so why I mean, you got me during the prime of my life and I'm not going anywhere. 
why would you waste this opportunity? Let's go at them. I don't give a shit how many there are and I don't care what they have. Uh, but if we're doing it, we're doing it. And we're going to, we're going to, we're going to break them in pieces. That's what we do. So I, I never understood coming home from Iraq and hearing the cacophony of, of news radio and talk shows of, it was just like, I, I was in, I was in another world. I was so, you know, isolated from all that, that I could not believe that we we're making a parlor game out of combat when men are, are dying. It just, it was, it was, it, it, it just broke my brain. I couldn't take it. I had to completely disconnect. And that's when I think I did what a lot of veterans do, which is just say, all right, let's build the, you know, let's build the time capsule and just put our whole military in a, in a box and bury it. And let's just grow our hair out and get a job and focus on something else. You know, I'm not going to wear the high and tight to work. I'm not going to low crawl to my copier. I'm not going to, you know, be the guy yelling niner, five, five, three, three. You know, I'm just, let it, let it go. Let it go and move on. Let it go. Yeah. It'd be interesting. I think in today's age with, with social media and obviously just having internet and the ability to transmit data all across the globe in mass, these parallels still exist from, I would imagine guys coming home from Vietnam, guys coming home from World War II. Although I feel like World War II, we're in it to win it. Gloves are coming off because I think this is a good segue. In the book, you do talk about relationships, inner, inner unit politics, for lack of a better phrase. But there's one night, I think the undersecretary of defense or one of those guys is visiting and he's doing his dog and they're doing the dog and pony show and you're ordered no contact, but you have to go out on patrol which to me is like just mind boggling, like go out there again, the hornet's nest has been kicked, but don't shoot anybody. And you encounter a giant as you describe it. So again, when you talk about confronting things, can you, can you talk to me about maybe some of those inner inner unit politics and the, I would say the different viewpoints you had versus maybe some of the leadership at the time and what your perspective is on that? Well, at the time it was that I had, See, I, I had leaders that my, our officers in 2-2 Infantry, 1st ID, you know, Peter Newell, uh, Sean Sims, our commander, uh, they, were, they were convinced that you could win a war and not lose your soul. And it, it's, it's an, again, it's forward thinking. It's leadership. How can we do this and get dirty and win, but not completely lose ourselves where we're chasing ghosts for the rest of our lives. And I was of the mindset that I don't give a damn about tomorrow. And I really don't care about my soul. I 40, 50, these are luxuries. Like I'm in it now. And all I want to do, you give me, pray to God every night, just give me an enemy that is going to stay where they're at. Give me someone that wants to stand up in a fight so I can take it to them and I, avenging was so important to us. If someone killed one of our guys, I wanted to kill that guy. It's not, we win because they stopped shooting and they ran away. That's not a win. They're, they're going to come back. We, we got to get right. them now, you know? And I didn't understand counterinsurgency. I didn't, I didn't grasp it. I didn't understand that my actions could possibly save an American a year from now on a deployment. I didn't understand that the population mattered that these were human beings that were 
placated by intimidation and violence and that they're they're gonna they're gonna nod and shake their head to your face and then they're gonna try to do whatever they can do to feed their family tomorrow and they're not evil they're just they're scared and so in order to make them un, unafraid you have to show that that their life is as valuable as your own life they have to trust you you have to separate the civilian from the enemy by tr- having them trust you and the best way to do that is to not shoot 750 rounds into their cafe. You know, the best way to do that is to not call a 4,000 pound bomb on their front yard, you know? And, and, and that's not where I was wired in 2004. Now I look back and, and I'm able to see these guys really knew what they were doing. These guys, this is incredible leadership that I did not appreciate or understand until, you know, I, I have kids now ready to go to war. I want leaders like that for my children. Like, I, I get it. I get it. I see what you're saying. And I fought them every step of the way. And I was wrong. And, and, it, and it, it, it takes something to admit that you're wrong. But I was there to say, you know, if you're a bad guy, I don't care who's in the street. I don't care what crowd is out there. You're going to die. You're going to die. And I'm going to take you out. And that's the way it is. And Every time you treated a patient in a counterinsurgency, you would get four other infected patients. Because if a civilian saw someone die, they have a personal relationship. They don't know that the, at night the guy's an asshole. They don't know at night yep. the guy's trading arms. During the day, he's a wonderful human being. And you just shot him in the face, you know? And now everyone just, you killed Jeff. Like, why did you kill Jeff? You know? And so... <laughs> I went up against it. We, my squad, my platoon went up against this dude who was like six, eight. And you didn't see that in Iraq. I mean, they're malnutrition. You know, you, you would see a 15 year old. He looked like a six year old in the States. They weren't well fed. And uh, this dude was huge. And he had like a sword and he was waving it like a fool. And I'm like, you know, you cut my guy. I'm going to shoot you in the, and we did. And I saw the residual effects of what that does. And the people that were really friendly to us, they love that big guy. They love that big guy in their, their town. He was their person. And how you could be a soldier and honorable and kill a person threatening your soldiers. And the guy you killed can also be honorable and beloved and he was just doing his thing and how the juxtaposition right. is so it's chaos. It's war. It's nuts. But I learned, I learned and it, and it took a while to learn that. But to be fair too, you know, reading that story the, that you described the giant coming out in the middle of the night, telling him to go back inside and in broken Arabic, telling him to go away. You know, you, you put yourself, you're in a tough spot. And again, it's, yeah, if you if you if you kill one, you'd created five more. It's it's a really complex problem set to say the least. That's counterinsurgency and dealing with it. Um, so I know it, for those again, I encourage you to get the book, read the story. Um, you weren't in a great spot. I wouldn't have wanted to be in that spot. You guys were at that night with again, but again, trying I, to use I, I words. Did, I did put I did put myself in that spot. I learned a lot of lessons about you know what exposure you want, rooftops over houses, things like that. And that's part of the, 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 but at the end of the day, 
you know, I knew the laws of land warfare. I knew the Geneva Conventions. I knew what our, our you know, and our, our branch, our army standard is far above what the Geneva Conventions are. I mean, you know, you, you, you there's uh, 15 echelons above the standard and we maintained it and exceeded it. But the, the problem was this existential struggle between hearts and minds and counterinsurgency and war, kinetic war. How do we maneuver attrition and counterinsurgency? How does it mesh? And what I found out was that everyone was going through these birth pangs. Everyone was going through this gestational, you know, angst of how do we, we're here to kill Soviets. We're here to blow up armor. You know, how do you, how do you matriculate to that type of warfare? We figured it out in a very short period of time. It wasn't in 2004, but by 2008, our, our military was ready for counterinsurgency and we make a huge, uh, a huge growth in Iraq in particular from 2008 to 2009 uh, because of those policies and principles paying off. We lost a lot of men, a lot of blood and, and treasure, but, but it worked. Um, you know, the question is, was it worth it? You know, that's above my pay grade, but we won, yeah. we won that fight. Not, not an easy thing. And there's, again, this is something we'll deal with for, Again, I go back to the Hornets has been kicked. And I think this this is the problem set we're going to see pop up. Terrorism is going to be a problem set we deal with from here on out. Um, I can't imagine yeah. going through it in those years trying to figure out, you know, seeing the evolution of, I mean, even still, like we talk about air tasking orders. That's, that is the, how the lines are generated and lines being, that's how each sortie aircraft is tasked to take off and go fly. That air tasking order system is designed out of the cold war and to address it. And obviously it has evolved and had some massaging over the years, but that was the, the threat for the department of defense was staring down the Soviet union. And so then to go battle into the counterinsurgency and figure that out was a, is a huge cultural shift that took years to figure out. And now we're going back swinging the pendulum, swinging the other way back towards near peer threats. These are complex problem sets. And, and, you know, the enemy, you know, they read the paper too, and you, you get 20 bad guys in a building and you're aware that you just put $50 million to build this hospital up to make the people trust you and give them clean water and electricity. Do you really want to drop a 5,000 pound J dam on a building that you just constructed? So now, you know, the old school days of just, well, we got them fixed. Let's kill them. Well, you can't do that because you just took out their school, their hospital, their power, their water. That That's far more important than killing the bad guy. So, you know, yep. build a condition where the people reject the occupier. And we were the occupier for four years. And eventually the people of Iraq saw the Al-Qaeda foreigner as the occupier, the Iranian as the occupier, if you watch the news right now, what, what Iraq is pushing against is Iranian influence. I mean, that would have been a, a welcomed issue when we were there. Uh, they don't want, it's Iraq's business, get out of our business. That's, that's a healthy sign. You didn't see that in Afghanistan, but you saw that right. in, in Iraq. Again, it, it's, it's very complex. And I, I always thought too, is like to be able to put yourself 
try to empathize or place yourself. You know, if someone came down my street, kicking in doors and dragging me out and dragging my family out doing inspections, you're not winning, you know, you're not winning my affection. And all it takes is one errant mistake. Uh, you know, a hellfire goes into the wrong family. Someone is combative, right? And because they're irritated and they get taken off to jail, whatever it might be, you, the ramifications can quickly trickle up to the operational and the strategic level when you're dealing with such, you know, not dicey, but volatile situations. We're we, dealing we with deal with it. We sure. deal with it stateside with policing. I mean, you know, for, for a cop that does the right thing, no one cares. It's your job. You're expected it. They don't get a pat on the back. But my Correct. God, if you panic, if you zig when you should zag, the world is going to notice and you're going to upset a whole, you know, neighborhood community. It's a tough job. It's a thankless job. It's an unforgiving job. But thank God we have men and women that want to do it. But you understand 100%. that's that's counterinsurgency, too, in a way. If you have a criminal, you know, uh, node living in a in a city block, how do you take out the criminals? How do you take out people that are violent without disrupting, you know, the sanctity of people that aren't doing anything wrong, you know? And, and they'd always tell you like 2% of the population are the ones you got to worry about. Well, dude, there's 500,000 people here. I mean, that's a lot of bad guys, you know? <laughs> See what I'm saying? Like, yeah, a lot. <laughs> that's, a, that's a big number of, you know, disproportionate amount of a-holes living here. So how do you, how do you fight that? Well, I learned and, uh, I, I didn't get it at the time, but I, I, I think I understand it now. Yeah, not not an easy thing to broach. Again, I'm not the smartest person in the world. I empathize with those who have to try to make those decisions because, again, it's usually the lesser of two evils when you're dealing with a lot of this and you're going to have people on both sides who are not happy with you. So we digress. I want to jump back 2004, November. Um, it was we kind of talked about the the joint fight. That's kind of where I think Every, you felt like everyone was kind of coming together because of Fallujah was now the beast staring you guys down. Can you can you talk to me the lead up of Fallujah and then some of the initial actions there? Yeah, so I mean, there's a whole house to house is a, a a breakdown of just how the military machine churns out a huge set play. You have these you know assault areas, pre staging areas. It's like you know, Willy Wonka's factory. And, you know, you sit here for four hours, you sit here for five hours, you sit, hurry up and wait. And so by the time you've heard every Newt Rockney speech in the world, you know, let's go get them. You're at the point where it's like, that was yesterday. Like I'm done. Right. And, and, you know, the Higgins boat was an open air container that brought you to the beach and dropped the you know, the, the, the gate came down and, and the fight was there. A Bradley fighting vehicle is like an oven. And when that door opens, you have no idea. The periscopes have been shot out. You have no situational awareness. And you're just kind of out there. And you, you have no idea where you are and what you're doing. And so it takes a little bit of acclimation to be like, okay, day, sun, nighttime. All right. Now I'm looking at my map. We memorized our maps. We memorized our phase lines. The satellite imagery was 48 hours old. Nothing's there. The whole city, it's the size of Tampa Bay, Florida. All of our phase lines have been gobbled up by Spectre gunships and 16 Charlies and A-10s and 
it's artillery. There's nothing recognizable. And so you're like, oh, my God, we're like a kilometer in. <laughs> like, this is, <laughs> it's crazy. Like, where are we? Who's out there? And so now, you know, you go from sitting around for literally 15 hours on, you know, a bench and it's scooped up, you know, Bradley fighting vehicle to, you know, letting that dog off the chain. And, you know, that's adrenaline, you know, your adrenaline goes up, your adrenaline drains, your adrenaline goes up, adrenaline drains. And, and you try to sustain that for days and days without food and without sleep. And your, your brain starts to, you feel it, you know, you feel, you know, like, did I see that? Like, you got to trust your senses and in an urban fight, first of all, we pull out of Fallujah in April. This is November. There are bodies rotting there since April. So everything is just teeming with bacteria and, and broken debris and, and, and you learn to trust the sense that you never thought you would need in a firefight. Everything, my eyes, my eyes are 100%, not anymore. My eyes are seeing water buffaloes cross the road. Like that didn't happen. You know, I, I, Gallagher's hitting a melon. I'm like, wait a minute, I'm, I'm hallucinating. My eyes are gone. <laughs> my ears right. are done. Everyone's shooting five feet away from you. You're, you're just, your ears are shot in a close quarter fight. And so what you rely on is your smell. Like you go into a house and you're like, I smell bacteria. I smell feces. I smell breath. I smell body odor. There's a person here. I remember, you know, you knock down a door. You do that 30,000 times. I don't even know how many times. It's, it's, it's Tampa Bay, Florida. You're clearing a section of Tampa from east, you know, north to south. You're going to hit you know, 50,000 homes, each one, you've never been in it. It's not like SEAL Team 6 where they, the Bin Laden house, they built a facsimile. I don't know where the hell you store your sofa, what you're doing. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> and, and so I don't know where I'm at, what I'm doing. There's booby traps everywhere. They're knocking out walls and roofs and it's just chaos. But I remember specifically, there was so much debris and dust from just that city, just sitting alone. And you'd see like, <clears throat> excuse me, you'd see a, an orange cup, just like just a cup on a, on, a, boop, on, a, on a table. Everything's covered in dust and debris. And that cup, you're like, right? Like someone's here. Yeah. And you would go from exhausted to just like, bing, bing, like everything in your body. And, 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 and it made me feel like an animal. Like I'm just like, you know, like I smell a dude where is he so now where's he hiding well i don't give a rat's ass i'm popping i'm not looking behind the couch i'm shooting the couch i i see a yeah. bulge in the curtain i'm shooting the curtain i'm shooting the hall i'm shooting everything there's a dude here and once you go through that and you're just hyper alert you're just evaluating threat it's actually an easier fight the easiest of fights, because it's just threat, kill it, threat, kill it, threat, kill it. Where the other ones were, it's a threat, but there's kids there. There's a th You can't just throw a grenade in a room. There could be a woman in there. There could be an innocent person in there. Everything had to be surgical. This was high intensity, Old Testament. All the women and children are gone. 
if it's if it's walking, it's got a gun, you, you ventilate it. It's done. It's through. And and just the the dogs in that city were not fed. The the families just left their animals. And so the dogs were starting to eat people. And and they would wait. Our Bradleys were like Pavlov and and the noise of the guns and the noise of the engines made them realize that when I hear these things, there's food sources. And so you would get ready to take a block out and you'd see like 40 dogs just lined up waiting. And, and they did our BDA for us. They did our battle damage assessments because you would engage and then the dogs would run in and you'd be like, done. Like, all right, we got them because they're feeding. It was so insane. But at the same time, we did it together. We did it as a unit and we had each other. And then you come home and you need a new kitchen floor. You need new tires in your car. You, your, your, your wife cheats on you. Your boss fires you. Where are my guys? Where do I go for support? They're not there. I don't have, you know, I'm alone. I'm doing this by myself. So for years, I was just like, I'm, I'm a superhero in my head. I can handle everything. Let the world take a shit on me. I will get through it. I'm like, I don't have to do that. I have people that care about me. Why am I avoiding them? Because maybe I'm afraid to address the guys that we lost. I'm afraid to accept the reality of combat. And once I kind of went through that mourning phase and brought these guys back, I feel like I'm Thor again. I have them in my life and we're all going through issues, success, failure, divorce. Some have addiction. Others have other issues. But you know what? They're not alone anymore. We're, we fought for each other at war. We're going to fight for each other at peace. And, and that's really what this book is about, is finding your tribe, finding your family. <laughs> And realizing that, you know, you went through this together, go through life together. What's, what's wrong with that? Was there a moment or a catalyst that kind of tripped that switch in your head to going down that road of thinking that way versus, yep, you're, you're alone and you're going through your own struggles. Everyone's going through their own little thing and no one's, you're not together again. Was there some kind of catalyst that the aha moment where your perspective changed? Yeah, it was the president of the United States calling me on the phone and saying, I'm getting the Medal of Honor. And, and I, I was like, what is this? I, no, really. I mean, you, this, that, yeah. you, in basic, in the Army infantry basic training, you are just bedazzled with Medal of Honor citations. Everywhere you go, it's the walls festooned with citations. You polish your shoes, you do your laundry, you're doing PT, you do, there's a citation, there's a citation. You memorize the citation. You, you know these people. The asterisk means that they died. No asterisk means they're alive. You know who Drew Dix is. You know Gary Biker, Gary Luttrell, Audie Murphy, Hershey Mayamora, Pat Day, uh, Joe Marm, these, these are not people. They're, they're, they're granite statues. And you in Fort Benning, Georgia are conditioned from day one that this is something you will never come near. 
it's holy ground. You take your shoes off like Moses. You genuflect. You don't make eye contact. You'll never meet a recipient. You'll never see the award. This is another alternate universe. You're just a soldier. But this, these people and what they did is, is the standard. And you never in a million years would ever put yourself on a pedestal with them, consider them to be a peer. And you certainly could not fathom that a kid from Buffalo would ever do anything Medal of Honor worthy. And so it's just, it's just a thing that they talked about for 15 years. I never thought it was going to happen. And then it did happen. And I was like, well, you know, now, now's the time to, to bring the band back together. Yeah, I can, obviously I can see that being a pivotal point. I, I go into the book and reading you describing the events leading up to the phone call where the president called you. Um, Cause in the book you're describing the investigation that's going on or the army's reaching out to different people in your background. Can you, how, what, how long of a time period was that? Did you, I mean, honestly, did you have any inclination or did you think it led back to, you know, the giant, um, who, yeah, uh, absolutely. So, so I had, um, when I wrote the book, you know, look at the, when, when you get any attention, the veteran community is awesome. Right. But it's like a 50, 50, you got 50% of people are like, Hey man, love your podcast. And then you got 50% (laughs) they're like, dude, I'm going to destroy you. I hate you. Right. <laughs> you must be taken out. You're the worst person. So yeah. there's no that mercy. in every branch, in every world, right? And then you mix politics into that and people see you as a threat because you're, you have ambition or people want you to run for office. And then you get this cadre and cohort of just, you know, civilians that want to find something wrong with you. You're a pedophile, you're a murderer, you're whatever. And then you do a radio show and now it's all the, you know, it, it's like every time you do something, you're breaking off another fraction of people that are just in our culture are just trolls and horrible human beings. And so the question, when, when you get a call out of the blue and they don't tell you what it is, but they're asking about serious incident reports and about witnesses, I, I lawyered up and I was like, look, I got right. a federal attorney. He's very expensive, but this guy is going to defend me because I don't know what the hell this is. This is, you know, how many shakedowns, you know, you write a book, you get shakedowns all the time. Pay me 500 grand and I won't, you know, tell the truth. Well, for 15 years, this was just a story in a book. There was no, the videotape is what gave all this credibility. Michael Ware's videotape that I didn't even know existed, quite frankly, is, is kind of what, well, this guy's telling the truth. This is legitimate. So until that videotape came out, a lot of people were like, nah, he's full of shit. He's making it up. He's whatever. And you deal with that too. You know, you deal with that too. But I thought this is going to be a problem. So I need to start writing all this shit down that I remember in case this thing goes, you know, sideways. <laughs> and so yeah. when, when I finally am told it was... uh October until September to March, I got a series of phone calls asking a lot of questions. March, I get a call from the president and then they announce it in June. 
So Jeez. you can't really tell anyone, but all your friends know you were being investigated. So it's like, you know, right. what happened? Is he going to jail? What's he going to do? It was, it was not fun. It, it was pretty, uh, it was pretty crazy. I can, I can't even fathom it. I just, my one anecdotal story, it was dealing with the Afghanistan. It was two years after this incident, we lazed for a bunch of Apaches for some guys who were placing an ID in the road. And it was clear as day. It was nighttime, right? But it's IR and it's a, they're digging the hole in the road. They're digging the straight line across the road. They're sweeping it. You know, we're watching them for like 20 minutes. It can't be any clear, but the Apache crew. And then subsequently the, they, the IDF crew, then direct fire crew, mortar team, the army launched an investigation, but two years later they came and found me and my crew and asked about it, you know? So it was just like one, you can't even find anyone on the, the global network to begin with. So it's kind of scary. They found me that fast, but I can't imagine that would have had to be a very stressful, unnerving time going through that. It sucked. And, and the other thing is that, you know, they won't confirm or deny negative, positive dispositions. And you're like, I'm a grown man. Look, I don't need it. And, and I don't want it, quite frankly. I mean, give the Medal of Honor to a 23-year-old who's going to go to Hollywood and, you know, date and, you know, drink for free. But when you're in your 40s and you got kids and you've got businesses, it's a colossal pain in the ass. I mean, you know, <laughs> it really is because it's like, you know, help us recruit, help us do this, be a mascot. Afghanistan's got 20 plus recipients living from, you know, the Afghan war. Iraq had none. There was no living recipients. They were all posthumous. And so I knew that being the first and only living guy, that it would be an autopsy on the war. And everyone's going to want to revisit why and weapons of mass destruction. I'm like, what, what am I, you know, Jim Lehrer? Now I got to break down the, you know, uh, the intel, the <laughs> yellow cake from right. Nigeria. I don't know what the hell's going on, dude. I mean, you know, just, I mean, leave me alone. I, why, why am I the ambassador? Like, what did I do? I'm, you know, can I say no? Because I will tell you categorically no. Give it to someone else. Give it to someone who needs it. I don't need it. I'm doing, I worked my ass off to get to a point where I didn't have to be a soldier anymore. I never wanted to be a professional veteran. I just wanted to be, I wanted to work hard with what the army taught me, how to discipline and how to work hard. I wanted to use that to take care of my family and, and find a little groove in my world. And now yeah, it's- Yeah, they disrupted that. Yeah, it's all screwed up. What? Uh, I, I might've missed it, but you weren't awarded anything for the night of November 10th. So this was an upgrade. It, like Master Sergeant Chapman from the air force, that predator feed video came out. I mean, gosh, what, like 15 years after Roberts Ridge, he was a silver star recipient and they obviously posthumously upgraded to medal of honor. But you, so you had no inclination to rolling into. So I was nominated. The media told me I was nominated for the medal of honor in 04. I got a, a silver star. So my unit was, we took a lot of attrition and we were Germany based. So we were disbanded. And also in Fallujah, I lost my whole chain of command, my XO, my CO, Sergeant Major, they all died. So, you know, awards really weren't a priority. Um, yeah. But I was told I was getting the Distinguished Service Cross after the, the war ended. And that didn't happen. And they told me they were upgrading the Distinguished Service Cross. 
which I didn't even think Medal of Honor. I thought, well, that's got to be something cool. Who cares? I mean, I'm, I'm leaving the army. I'm having my kids. And then in the mail, I got like a silver and a bronze star. And I was like, this, you know, I would have rather not received in a bathrobe from the UPS man, but whatever. <laughs> and then when I read it, when I read it, it was basically the silver star was just for walking through a doorway and suppressing the enemy while my guys got out. So there was no acknowledgement that people had died that, you know, that I cleared anything or took anyone out. So listen, it's a silver star. It's a bronze star. That's awesome. I mean, that's cool. Put it, you know, put it in the closet and the kids could see it when I die and everyone's happy and maybe you get Applebee's out of it, you know? So, and, <laughs> and, uh, and then they said that they upgraded the silver star to the medal of honor. And I, you know, again, I, it, it was, it was incredible. And it, it's, it's awkward. We're not conditioned for this. We're not, it's not, it's not about us. It's about the team. It's about, you know, you don't want a squad leader who's writing himself up for awards. You don't want the platoon sergeant. Who's like, you know, <laughs> did you see what I did? Hey, Anyone witness that, yeah. you know, that's not how right. we, we do it. So it was weird. Right. I can imagine, but at least, uh, you know, the video evidence, which led to it, being upgraded when, we, when people can see it, you know, it's not like you putting yourself in for the congressional medal of honor. So if I could have uh, done that, I probably would have done it years ago, you know, and I would have, <laughs> I would have given myself three, you know, <laughs> if you could write right. yourself yeah. up, it's the first quad winner it's, of the MOH. Right. <laughs> yeah. like it's funny how I'm sure there's, there's parallels with everyone's career. Like when I first started out and me and my buddies will joke about this, I mean, you're just, you're career focused, you're go-getter. Like you want, like if I was going to, I didn't know if I was going to stay in or not at that point, but you were always striving to like be the best and compete and yada, yada, yada. And then you get like a little removed from it or you get a few laps around the sun and realize like what's important and what's not important. But you know what's, what's, like, so, oh, strange. Yeah, he was, what's so crazy about this award though, is that it, it, it's only what someone else witnesses. So, so if you were yeah. to get into a fight and you ran down the street and you killed 35 enemy guys with a MRE spoon and nobody yeah. saw it, they don't, it's not in the award. And the other thing that's weird is they don't give a damn what you have to say. Like you're never interviewed for the award. So no one ever knows your really? side of the story. Like, it's like, they don't care. Yeah, like, yeah. I'm like, Hey, there was a, a sub basement I didn't tell you about. And they were. It was a colony of, right. of queen bees living in there. They were the the vampire king. You missed it. They're like, I know I give a shit right. about what you have to say. Like, no one cares. Yeah. So it's only what's witnessed by other people. And it gets, it gets weird, though, because you're like, I don't remember. I don't think that they – I remember what I saw, what I did. I thought I shot a guy – 15 times. I thought I shot a guy eight times. And then I get a videotape and I'm like, oh my God, like it's the weirdest thing to have a videotape resurfaced. Cause your first thought is, oh no, what's on the tape? You know what I mean? Like, what are you right. screaming like a woman running out of the building? I'm like, oh, I don't remember that. That's I, so weird. I thought I was much cooler than that. I, I the first reaction was I was petrified. Like my family saw the documentary and they were all like, dear God. 
son, why? You never told. (laughs) But in my head, I was like, I'm humiliated that my voice could go that high, that I sounded like a soprano (laughs) at the Met Opera, you know, screaming at the top of my lungs. I was horrified at the way I sounded. I, I didn't think I sounded like I was, I could hear the fear in my voice. And right. I couldn't believe all the things I had thought I had like the shots. I thought it was like a five minute fight. It was tw- the tapes, 29 minutes long. The original tape is 29 minutes long. It would have, I would have thought it was a two minute fight. Well, I thought it was like a five minute fight. And then right. the amount of bullets, like I don't have any recollection of the enemy firing that much. I thought I fired more. And it just, it's weird. The whole thing is just really, really strange to see it. And the world is watching it. It's really crazy. Yeah. I have nothing to compare it to. So that is obviously on the record here. The interesting aspect, they'll do like aircraft mishaps. I remember in particular, we had this one in Texas and the guy, he ran off the runway and he didn't shut the engine down for five minutes. But after they talked to him, he, he was like, yeah, it was 20 seconds later, I got that thing shut right down. They're like, no, it was almost five full minutes running. So the temporal distortion, you start learning about these things that your body goes through in in high stress environments. And I will say I did have one instructor early on. He goes, it doesn't matter how bad it is. You know, you've lost your motor, you've lost your wing, whatever it is, before you key that mic and say anything on the radio, Everyone in the world is going to hear this. This is going to be the last thing they hear. Yeah, dude. Like you got to be. Yeah. yeah. You know, what's funny. Michael Ware, Michael Ware reached out to me. He said, you know, you read the book that remember the Ramrod book. And he was like, you know, I really wished he's doing some project and he's been like in Tasmania doing like chasing drug cartels or whatever he does for fun. (laughs) And and he was like, I really wish you would have told me you were going to put so much personal stuff about me because I feel a little bit like you kind of invaded my privacy. And I said, you know, listen, man, I, that wasn't my intent. I love you and I care about you. And I wanted the world to know what kind of man you are. And I think you're an incredible person. There's nothing in this remotely embarrassing, but he shared some things with me and I shared it with the in the book. And he's like, yeah, but still it's weird that the people are going to read something. I never intended for people to know. I said, Hey, you know what, buddy? You fucking put a documentary out of my worst day of my life for 70 million people. Why don't you eat a bag of shit, dude? <laughs> don't even, we're, we're even, okay? You were nominated uh, for an Oscar and you're on HBO. Yeah. No, but we, we, we joked about that. But, it, but it, it, you do worry about that, though, because you don't – there are some people – I made sure that – where was the only one I couldn't get a hold of because he was running around with, you know – his combat, but everyone else, (laughs) unlike house to house, I made sure everyone read what was going in that book. Cause I did not want anyone, even my own children. I didn't want anyone to be like, no, don't do that. And, and honestly, these guys really showed a lot of trust in me because there's some, there's some raw stuff out there, but I'm proud of these guys and I'm, I'm, I'm proud of, what they did. And I'm, I'm honest and I, you know, I'm showing vulnerability and insecurity too, because I screwed up. You know, I, I made some, a lot of stupid mistakes. Um, but I, I, again, I just, I want to write, I, 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 nothing to say for 15 years. 
I mean, everyone's like, write a follow. How do you write a follow up to a book that's like, by the way, what I didn't tell you was there was another, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know like, right. there was, yeah. I left out <laughs> the part where I was a POW, you know, like you, you, know, right. you don't follow up a book about, you know, a generational fight. <laughs> and so right. they, they were like, write another book. I'm like, I have nothing to say. There's nothing, I, I don't have anything to say. And so I did have something to say after this award and I wanted it to be something that, you know, if you did a follow-up book, and you talked about the generation and we're losing too many guys to suicide and addiction. And it's dumb because we're, we're not those people. Yeah. We got to remember who we are. So that was the intent. Hopefully it worked out. Yeah. I mean, it's a great book. And again, I know, I think it just came out November 8th was the official yeah. date that it was published. So a little, a I little election got little. in the way. No one thought it Harper Collins that, People will be selling books on a midterm that it's, you know, strange. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. I'm competing with Michelle Obama, Bono, and Matthew Perry. And I'm like, you know, this couldn't have come out in March when I had nothing to compare. Going against the barefoot Contessa, I would have, you know, cleaned her clock. But no, I got to have the. Yeah. 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 If only we'd looked at a, if only these things happened oh, it's I don't know, every two years and there is a roughly a, a set date. We knew it's gonna be like on a Tuesday or something. Well, it, yeah. the, the literary time. industry, they, they, I, I, I'm working with Peter Hubbard who did American Sniper. He uh, edited that book and you know, it's obviously it's a classic and people love it. And one of the best selling books of all time in, in our genre, but, but it's apparent that there are a lot of literary people that hate us. Like they really don't want more veterans writing books. You know what I mean? Like we're a threat to the industry. And I get that. I had, the, I had folks that were awesome at HarperCollins, but I get that sense at other houses that they're like, not another one of you, you know, like the seals that right. come out and just. Yeah. You're like, I'm not a Navy seal. It's right. fine. It's something different. Yeah. Like, like the New York times bestseller list was like Hegseth at Fox news, Jocko and Latrell, and just like, you know, one after another, they're like, damn it. I went to, you know, I've written 17 bestsellers. I'm getting beat by Jocko. You know, <laughs> why is that? Why is that happening? Right. Because yeah, they've lived strange. a life and they've got a story to tell. And these guys are really gifted writers too. I mean, they're really good at their craft. Yeah. So I don't know. They're not going to go away. They're going to keep writing. And uh, I guess we just have to learn to get along. I'm slightly biased, right? You know, but it's like the experience that you, Jocko, veterans who are writing these books, you're writing based on experience. I'll tell you the, 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 not the, that what sucks. Okay. So there's three things America loves. They love snipers. You write a sniper book, you're, you're dead. Balance. If you're a Navy SEAL, Balance. we love Navy SEALs. No, right. Delta, Special Forces, Air Force, none of those guys write books. Navy SEALs, Navy right. SEALs are sexy and snipers are sexy. But the third one is the pilot. People <laughs> love aviation books and they go crazy over them. So I'm like, not a sniper, not a SEAL, not a pilot. I'm screwed. You know what I mean? I've got to, I've got to step it up. You know, I got to. Well, you know. <laughs> I mean, Medal of Honor recipient. I mean, I feel like that should rank up there slightly, slightly high. But I, I think Navy SEALs, it's probably it's part of the training. I've heard them joke about. I think, you know, they go through buds and then straight to book writing course and then <laughs> on to whatever I'll tell you what, they though, do. I mean, you, there's very few of those guys that are are uh, they're really 
I mean, I, you know, we goof around the branches and whatnot, but a majority, the successful Navy SEALs that have actually done things, podcasting and products and whatever, they're really good guys. I mean, they're, they're super humble down to earth. I'm sure there's a few, you know, morons out there, but the ones I've had exposure to, they're, they're legit. And, and the other thing too, is that they're the guys that everything's expected of them because they're Navy SEALs. You know, you can't be like a 130 pound Navy SEAL, right? Like there's no, there's no Alvin York in the SEALs. It's like, I don't believe in tattoos and I don't smoke. And (laughs) they're all, they're all from central casting because they really have no, no choice, but to be that they're, they're conditioned to be alpha from the very beginning. And it's a, it's a cool community. I'm just not a part of the community. I don't have any connection to it. So I, I kind of see them like, uh, you know, silverback gorillas at the zoo, like they're cool to look at, you know, they're impressive, but I don't know anything about them. So I just kind of look at them from afar as a spectator. And what I always loved were the books, you know, cause my grandfather would tell me stories. He wasn't an elite soldier. He was just an infantry guy, you know, and he would just be like, eh, I don't know what I, you know, like the idea that you would tell a story where you miss a shot, it, every time, like, I'll, I, it's like, you wait a minute, we don't tell those stories. You only tell stories of the shots you hit. I'm like, but I never hit right. people. <laughs> I have a stigmatism. <laughs> <laughs> like, I never had LASIK surgery. Uh, I'm a very bad shot. Uh, you know, I got to, I work with SEALs a good bit. And then there's one point where I got to go and work with them on a pretty close basis in the Horn of Africa. Mm. but I worked out in their gym. And if you ever want to feel really bad about yourself, you go work out in a Navy SEAL gym. I was like, Great. this guy's like half my size. And he's just repping out 400 pounds. Like you read about, I, I do going back to uh, all seriousness, like cleared hot podcast with Andy Stump and the Sean Ryan show. Both those guys are Navy SEALs. I think the the content they put out there and the conversations they have are really important and they're there a lot of good they're incredible really good they're re- listen content. they're good yeah. they're good the seal thing is actually a postscript it, the talent yeah i mean jocko latrell um you know th- there are so many guys out there that do just good stuff and it's like oh by the way they're a navy seal like that wouldn't even matter who the, the guy wrote uh terminal list um uh, Jack Carr, dude, he's, he's a best-selling author. Like who, no one gives a damn. He right. could have been, you know, a parachute rigger. Like nobody cares. He's really good at his writing. The fact that he also is a stud in the military is a plus, but they're, they're good at what they do. Period. Well, it's nice. Cause you, you run across, I'm sure everyone you did. I did guys who define themselves by what they do and what their career is. For me, like I, I love flying F-16. Like that was great, right? Like that was a part of my life, but that is not, that was a chapter. Now it's the next chapter. And that's some people can't hang that up in my opinion. it's like, that that's it. That's all you got. I mean, yeah, everyone's different. They are. And I, you know, I don't know what, maybe they're right. Maybe I'm wrong or maybe they're wrong. Right. I don't know. I, but here's the thing, whatever works, you know, whatever works, uh, you know, I don't, I don't, ju- I don't judge because I don't care. You know, that's the other thing too. Like <laughs> everyone, awesome. every, the thing is like, what's your social media? How do I follow you on Twitter? I'm like, I don't want you in my life, dude. Okay. I don't want <laughs> nothing to do with you. I don't know who you are. Why would I want you following me? I don't want you following me at home. 
I don't want you following me in my car. I don't want anything to do with you. If you see a social media account that that tells you that I'm, I need to get home from Baghdad and I need a thousand bucks. It's not me, you know, like it's, there's a couple, it's a Nigerian there's a couple things that like the publisher put out there, but it's like, why don't you tweet more? I'm like, stop. You know, I don't, I don't care. Yeah. I don't care. But some guys do it really well. That Goggins guy, he's from my hometown in, in uh, Western New York, but David Goggins, oh, yeah. is a, that dude's a force of nature. Like what's wrong with you? He's like running the cities and he's, you know, swimming the Pacific ocean. Like he's, I mean, I'm a, I'm proud to be of a, in their generation, but I, they're, right. they're just different people and I respect it. I just, I'm not that guy. No, I've seen Goggins on, I forget who, the guy's a billionaire investor, uh, inventor, and he was on Joe Rogan. I'm blank on the guy's name, but he had David Goggins go live with him. And this guy spends 14, 15 minutes describing David Goggins living with him, like pulling out of bed at 3.30 in the morning, jumping into the lake that's frozen over. You're like, what in the world? Different breeds. That's not me either, but Dude, I, don't know. I mean, it's he's good a, to, he's, but I'm telling you, you can't fake that. Like that's him no. all the time. That is who he is. And now I'm thinking, could you imagine what a pain in the ass he would be as a subordinate? You know, like if oh. I get like PFC <laughs> Goggins showing up in formation, I'm like, hey, buddy, oh. I'm in charge of you. Shut your throttle, shut your mouth, and <laughs> throttle <laughs> back, no throttle back there, there, buddy. <laughs> Goggins has got to be a sergeant oh. major because if you if you got him as like an E2, you would you would quit. I mean, there's no way. Like that's, oh, he's a, he's yeah. an, an animal. He's awesome. I love him. Freaking nature. It's awesome. But and his story is pretty cool. I mean, I've only heard him say it once or twice, but cause he was attack P in the air force got out overweight. And then the aha moment I think was like spraying for bugs at a burger King in the middle of the night and saw a cockroach flipped over on the floor. He's like, I'm not going to be that fat ass. Now he's the machine he is today. You're like, geez. And, and all those guys are like, I think on the same team. I think they all like, I think it was like Jocko, Kyle, Mansoor, Medal of That's, Honor recipient, uh, Mark Lee, who was killed in action. Uh, and I think Goggins all like, they were all in like SEAL Team 3 or, or went to Buds together. It's a really yeah, crazy right. small world, but they're all, they're all rock stars. And so I'm, um, you know, I just, I respect it. I just stay in my own little lane. I won't be, I won't be <laughs> swimming in a frozen lake with a, with a GoPro camera on my head anytime soon. Hard pass. Although, I mean, you're up there in New York, it's about that time of year. So if you want that opportunity, I mean, you that's can go my, out there that's and do my that little river we're... outside my house right there. Hard. Oh yeah. yeah. Hard pass. <laughs> I have zero. It's uh, it's like, it's like 40 degrees outside today here. Uh, outside of Atlanta, I'm like, uh, we're getting two feet. We're getting outside. two feet in the next three days. I can't wait. It, do you get lake? Do you get lake effects now? Well, we're on the. We're between Ontario and Erie, so we get like the the hell. Okay. Of, if you ever want to go to a place and you quit on life, go to Fort Drum because Fort Drum is is there's more snow in Fort Drum than in Alaska. Ironically, enough, you know, I flew over Fort Drum five nights ago and I looked down and I was like, that looks cold. It's very and cold. And it's not even the beginning. It's not even really the cold part yeah. yet. So in World War II, Fort Drum is where they put POWs. That's how you know it's how bad it is. When, when your base <laughs> was housing for, for Nazi war criminals, you, you're, 
you're in a, a rough spot, but it's, it's great <laughs> unit. Great, great. Uh, if you love nature, it's awesome. But yeah. Oh, there you go. So our glow our ground liaison officer, the army guy attached to our unit at last deployment, he was stationed in South Carolina with us, obviously prior to deployment. And then about a month remaining in deployment, he got orders to Fort drum. So everyone got to go home kumbaya and he got to pack his stuff up and go to Fort drum. He wasn't too happy about it, but you know, it, it's uh it'll put hair in your chest. That's for sure. Yes. <laughs> well, sir, I do appreciate you taking the time today. I didn't, I, I didn't get to really talk too much about November 10th. Would you mind just kind of to just jump into that? Kind of real quick. And again, I say that real quick. You can take as much time as you no, want. No, I mean, I just. I, to give people who haven't read the book an idea of what they can expect there. It was a, a, you know, eight to 10 bad guys. You've heard that a million times. You know, it's never eight, rarely, <laughs> you know, never 10, rarely eight. And uh, they're in a block of houses and we just walked in and we've got them all in one house. And there were like two machine guns under a stairwell with a Jersey barrier. They made like a makeshift bunker out of the bottom of a stairwell. And they just, you know, tore us up. And uh, I had a guy, uh, Chris Oley, who, who was a point man with a saw, who amazing, uh, you know, reflects a fire just to put fire back down. And then while we just started taking the machine gun fire from inside that room, our machine guns opened up outside. And so we had kind of a crossfire going on and no one could really get up and move. And my weapon was malfunctioned because it got hit uh, by a round. And, you know, I just asked for a machine gun to be able to suppress them so we could peel out. And uh, I did it. I I got in the doorway. They they ran out. And uh, I just thought I'd hit one of them or wound one. And I didn't. And I was really upset about that. So when I ran out of ammo and got out of the house, I was standing next to a reporter from Australia, Michael Ware. and. I said, you know, I think I want to do this. I really want to go back in there and go after these boys. And I'm really angry that that we ran out. It just infuriated me. And I, I didn't, I, I just, this was it. I, whatever moment led me, this, this is where I'm going to get everything back. You know, I figured there's two of them and I'm good for two. You know, I'm not, <laughs> At least I'm two. not, yeah, I'm not SEAL Team 3, but I can get two, you know. <laughs> and so uh, it turned out there was five in the house, um, maybe a couple more, but we, uh, I just kept rolling until my lock ran out and the house was rigged to blow and there was a bunch of problems in there and guys hiding and jumping out. And um, I just got lucky, man. And, and that's, that's really hard to, you want to think it's your skill, it's your, it's your toughness, yeah. but it's luck. It's all luck. And that sucks because you know, your guys died because they were unlucky. They weren't worse than you, better than you. They got unlucky and you were lucky. And how do you live with that? You know, you gotta, you gotta live for them. You gotta remind strangers that Falkenberg and Madison and Sims and Iwan and Gary Entis and Mock and Sizemore and Rosales, these guys lived and they died for me. And I'm here because they gave their lives. So, you know, we, uh, we deal with that, but, um, no, I got lucky and I, and it wasn't a big deal. Like no one, no one left the house. and was like you one day, you know, it was just like, get your helmet back on, get some more magazines. Let's go fight. And then, uh, 
you know, he wrote an article in Time Magazine and it got traction. And then there was a tape out there. And next thing I know, you know, it's it's this. It's pretty crazy. Reading it's pretty crazy. And um, I mean, I know you say you say luck. I know there is definitely some luck with um, everything that's going on there, too. But the amount of courage it takes to go charging back in there. It's pretty incredible in my book. I'm going to tell you so. something, honest to God. I believe from what I've been exposed to in the military, I think 99% of our military is a potential Medal of Honor recipient. I really believe that. I think you, you just got to, you got to have a moment and it's got to be witnessed. But there's, I've never met someone, very few people I've met that I thought, yeah, I wouldn't want to be in a fight with him. I don't think he's worth it. It's very few, but the majority of them, I don't think would hesitate. And and I know that with authority because I saw him not hesitate for me a day later, a day before, two hours before, two hours later. I mean, these are, these are fi- my whole thing, the book, you could remember the Medal of Honor and you can, you know, invite me to your party and we can eat shrimp, but remember the ramrods because that's who raised me. That's who I am. That's my team. That's my family. And those guys, uh, they deserve attention to be paid to them, especially those that we lost. Well, I think I've heard you, I can't remember where I heard you say it, or, but I know you attest to us. I know you were awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor, but it's like anything. It wasn't just you clearing the house. Well, I guess it is a team, team effort. So I imagine how does that kind of play into your psyche in this, like when you, one, think about being awarded the medal of honor and two, like how, how does that, how do you handle that dynamic? Well, around the house, I like to be called overlord that the only thing that's really changed. <laughs> I demand to be carried to Na- all appointments. No, I naturally, <laughs> naturally. No, it, it, I mean, it's, it's not, there are times I see the award and I'm like, Oh no, like they're going to find out like you, you stole someone's medal of honor, you know? That's like a library yeah. book that I've got to return. Um, it's a weird thing. It, it never, it's not, it, it's, it's just, I guess, I guess my thing is, is that I want, I would, I would really, I'd really like to not be the only one from Iraq. I think that I could probably name you 10 other people that deserve it. That, that'd be fun to be able to say, our war we had some really yeah. incredible people. Um, and at the same time, uh, I don't know. I, I, I don't, I don't, I, I don't appreciate the only thing that sucks. People ask me this all the time. Like if you could do it over again, would you? And the cliche answer is of course, you know what I mean? That's what you're supposed to say. <laughs> right. Honest to God, Naturally. I would not yeah. have done it again. Knowing what I know now, Knowing what I know now, once those guys got out of the building, wait for the bomb. Just wait for the bomb. Unfortunately, bombs in Fallujah were like uh, butcher shop. You got a number. You waited a lot. It took yeah, you know, you're number hours. sixty in the queue. Yeah, right. Yeah, but if I no, if this if I had a glimpse into what 2022 would look like in 2004. Uh, I'm not, some people love this stuff. I hate, I'm not that guy. I'm not that guy. Yeah. Well, you didn't, 
you obviously didn't go running into the building with, hey, this citation, I can well, already see did, it being it written. This cooler. is going to be a good one. It yeah. Would've, it would've, yeah. <laughs> I would have made sure that there was at least an interview afterwards. Like, I, I thought to myself, like, <laughs> you know, you, you practice these things like, hey, tell my mom. You know, like, you know, have a letter. <laughs> nothing. There's nothing right. cool at all. You're not standing outside afterwards, smoking a cigarette, voice is all calm, nice deep yeah. voice, just telling about how awesome you yeah, were. Yeah, yeah. And yeah killed, killed all 100. On, on the tape, there's a point where they said, how many people were in there? And I'm like, I don't know. I think there's only one guy running around. Like, I didn't even, <laughs> I didn't even know <laughs> it was dark. And there was just, I'm like, I think it's like two, three, I don't know. Eight. They're all they're bad, all bad, just bad, bad news. Bad Gosh, news. that uh, it is. It's pretty wild. I guess even think that, um, yeah, between Iraq and Afghanistan, you said there's 20 living recipients from Afghanistan, or is 20 awarded from Afghanistan? Not to put you on the spot or anything, but I think it's 17 Afghanistan, 25 total. There's sixty. Okay. There's sixty-one living recipients. No, our last World War One, World War Two, was Woody Williams. He passed away. Uh, we have one Korea okay. Hershey Mayamora. The vast majority are Vietnam. But I mean, listen. You know, in ten years, there'll be there'll be less than 20, 20 of us, just by you know age. Right. Well, you. You mentioned earlier too, your, your grandfather, he's still alive? Yeah, he's um, a force and he's Goggins. My grandfather is yeah. Goggins. He's, he can't be killed by conventional measures. I love the man. What's well, need to get him on the podcast at some point. That's I, I mentioned because my, uh, my wife's grandfather, he was the battle of the bulge. He never talked about anything. And when I was going into the air force, I, he and I ended up in the car together for about an hour driving down the road. And he, some of, he was somewhat tough to understand country boy with always like a big chew in his lip. But for an hour, he just talked of things no one else in the family had ever heard. And I think it also, you know, he was getting towards the, he realized getting later in life and this was probably it. Um, but hearing some that's of the stories man. for me, that, that's, that's magic. That, that's like, you know, hearing the, cause those, it, we can't let those stories go away. You know, when they, when they go and yeah, that's it. And that's, I mean, the whole kind of part of the reason doing this podcast is I, I feel like there's so many stories from just interact. I mean, there's so many awesome people I've met over the years that you hear what they do that only makes it in a small circle yeah. and it, and then it just, it fades away. Right. It doesn't land on anyone else's ears. And that's again, why I like these podcasts. Like, you're able to have a deep conversation or surface level, con- whoever it depends who it is, but you're able to capture a lot of content that otherwise, you know, these stories will, most of them will fall on not deaf ears, but they'll land in the family, they'll land in close friends and that's it. And they're like, Oh yeah. And you know, the neighbor's like, Oh yeah. Like Barry, he was a guy he ejected three times, you know, in Vietnam, whatever it is. And like, that's the end of it. There's nothing, there's nothing to document it. So, well, if I die, I make it cooler than it was. And then uh, we'll, yeah. we'll, be, we'll be all set, man. I appreciate your time. Thank you very much for, for having me on. Well, sir, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to talk, share your story again. Remember the Ramrods, a great book. And I appreciate everything you've done and also putting this out there. Again, I think it's, a, it's an important 
important content to have out there for people to know and document and share the story of the guys you fought side by side with. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. As always, thanks for listening to the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. You can pick up Remember the Ramrods. I got a link down below. Again, thank you to all my Patreon supporters. Thank you to all those who have dropped a rating or review over on iTunes, and I'll see you next time.